Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. And on this episode of Jill on Money, one of the foremost scam artists of last century tells us why we are in bigger trouble today than ever. Today, you're dealing with someone sitting in a kitchen in their pajamas on a laptop with a cup of coffee in Moscow. They never see you. You never see them. So there is zero compassion. They will take you for every penny you have. And they don't care who you are or what the circumstances are. And I think that's what's real scary. The whole emotional side of it, the compassion side of it, is gone. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Well, we've got a great treat for you today. We have the famous, the infamous Frank Abagnale. 55 years ago, Frank became a con artist at the age of 16. This is the guy whose life was the source for the movie and the book, Catch Me If You Can. Remember that one? That was so good with Leonardo DiCaprio. Frank's got a new book out called Scam Me If You Can, and he's got simple strategies to outsmart today's ripoff artists. And he should know, because he was one. Here's our interview with Frank Abagnale. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. All right, we got to go back in time. Before we do, you ready for your big first question? Yes. What is your best career or financial decision that you've ever made? Uh, Marrying my wife 43 years ago and bringing three wonderful sons into the world. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that. All right, let's get to you. Can you tell us a little bit about the Catch Me If You Can? Was that movie really true to life? I thought he did an excellent job of telling the story. For Steven Spielberg, it was the first time he made a movie about a real person, so he was extremely careful because I was living. Uh, so he found the three FBI agents that were retired, and he brought them to the set. The Bureau sent our information officer to the set to make sure he was accurate about what he said in reference to the FBI. I thought he stayed very close to the story. He changed minor things. You know, I have two brothers and a sister who said I was an only child. Things like that that he changed. That's around a, a weird bit. thing to change, though. Yeah, I think I he wonder didn't, why. I think he didn't want to bring all because it's an unusual name. He didn't want to bring all the Abignales into uh, it. Ah, yeah. all right. Now, can you explain why on earth you decided to pretend you were a pilot when you were sixteen years old? Um, back in the nineteen sixties, my parents, after twenty-two years of marriage, one day decided to get a divorce. Uh, I was pulled out of a classroom in school. And uh, next thing I knew, I was standing in front of a judge. And I remember that the judge never looked at me, never acknowledged I was staying there. But he told me my parents were getting a divorce and I had to choose which parent I wanted to live with. What? And Wait uh, a minute. Wait a minute. Is this because your mother left your father and then that's why you got to choose? Well, because I was 16, according to him, because I was 16 years old, I needed to make a choice which parent I was going to live with. Oh, my God. And being 16, I really couldn't make the choice. I loved both my parents, so... I basically ran out the door, and the judge called for a recess. Uh, my mother never saw me again for seven years. My father never saw me. In the movie, that was the only thing. He had me going back to talk to my dad, but in real life, my dad never saw me again. He died while I was in the French prisons. Oh, um, my God. So yeah, I ended up on the streets of New York City. A lot of kids ran away in the 1960s, but they got into Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. And I thought right away that, you know, I'm going to have to get creative because I'm 16 years old. So uh, back then we had a driver's license in New York. It didn't have a photo on it. It was an IBM card. So I altered just one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped the four and made it a three. 
That made me 26 years old. I always looked a little older. I always had a little bit of gray hair. Kids in school used to say that once a week I went to a private Catholic school that we had to go to mass. We had to dress in a suit. They said, you look like a teacher. You don't look like a student. So uh, I started lying about my age. And then I had a checking account. And I had a little money because I worked for my dad. He had a store downtown in Manhattan. And I went from high school in the summer I'd worked. I had a little money saved up. And I started just writing a check to supplement my income, $20, $15. But I found it so easy to do. I would walk in the bank. I didn't have an account there, but people would say, yeah, I'll cash it for you. And, uh, and then, of course, when I ran out of money, I kept writing those checks. And everything I did in my career as a teenager, because I was an adolescent, I had no fear of being caught mm-hmm. and no fear of consequences. And nothing was premeditated. So I saw a pilot come out of a hotel with an airline crew, and I thought to myself, boy, if I could get one of these uniforms, then when I walk in these banks, I could say that I'm an out-of-town pilot. It would be so much easier to cash a much bigger check. And so I finagled the uniform, and I got it was so it was like night and day. I walk in the bank, they say no problem at all. They cash the check, and I realized the power of that uniform—that they only really saw the uniform, not me, not the check. And then, you know, just as it showed in the movie, I go out to the airport and I'm going to buy a ticket. And it was a TWA terminal. It was a TWA ticket counter like they did in the movie. And she said to me, are you riding or are you flying? So I beg your pardon? Are you riding the jump seat or are you going to purchase a ticket? I said, well, I, I could ride the jump seat. She said, okay, well, that's fine. Then I realized I could fly around the world for, for free. free. <laughs> yeah, that's so, awesome. So everything just came to me as I was doing these things. But you never, you make this point, you never actually flew a plane. No. And I never flew on Pan Am. And people said, why didn't you? And the reason was that I didn't want somebody to say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco. I never met you. I've been out there 15 years. Or, you know, uh. your ID card's not just like my ID card. So I always wrote on every other airline, knowing they could never ask me to do anything. I just sit in the jump seat and ride. That's amazing. Okay. So from 16 to how 21. old? To 21 as a pilot? I know. Or, six, so let's wait, two, let's do 16. You were the you start the doing pilot, the pilot. About 18, then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, hung up the uniform, had a lot of money, moved into a singles complex. And Swinger. on the application, again, nothing premeditated, but it asked occupation. Well, I didn't want to write airline pilot because they were looking for me. So I wrote doctor. And nothing else. But the apartment manager said, oh, you're a doctor. Uh, Yes, ma'am. Well, what type of doctor are you? And I said, I'm a medical doctor, but I'm not practicing medicine. I came to Atlanta to invest in some real estate. Oh, how interesting. Well, what type of medical doctor? And this was a singles complex. Only single people lived there. So I said I was a pediatrician. And I moved in. And the next thing I know, the guy moves in next to me as a pediatrician. So I start realizing I have to kind of learn a little bit. Well, I had to have a conversation with him. But then he invited me up to the hospital to meet everybody. And then so one day, sure enough, they come and say, well, one of the doctors had a death in his family. Do you mind covering the shift in administrative capacity, not treating anybody? And I thought, well, I could give that how a shot. Bad, how, <laughs> bad, how hard could that be? Yeah, you I know, could, right? I'll Look. give it a shot. Yeah. So I, I impersonated a doctor. Uh, you know, I met a girl who was a flight attendant. In the movie, it's a little different, but in real life, she was a flight attendant. Her dad was the attorney general in Louisiana. Oh, my God. Uh, That's flirting with some danger right there, right? right? But, uh, you know, again, back in those days, a lot of pilots were always furloughed. So I told her I was an airline pilot. I'd been furloughed. 
she said, well, what's your degree? And I said, I have a law degree, but I haven't been practicing. So she introduced me to her dad. I took the bar in Louisiana. I was able to pass the bar. You took the bar? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. And actually, in Louisiana, at the time I took the bar, there was no requirement for a law degree. Anyone could take the bar. And, of course, I had somewhat of a photographic memory, so I was able to memorize what I needed to know. Uh, and I took the two-month prep course that all law students take to prepare them for the bar in that particular state. Passed the bar. I went to work for then Attorney General P.F. Grimion in the <laughs> Civil Division of the That's State amazing. Court. I spent about a year there. I was always smart enough to know you can get away with it for a while. You can't get away with it forever. Right. So I always was smart enough to, to move on. And then how did you make the jump into forging and really creating faux currency? To yeah, that was the, the thing. You know, I started out just writing checks. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I did that, uh, again, never premeditated. So this is a perfect example. I went to a bank in Chicago, opened a checking account with $100, and I gave them phony identification. And I was thinking to myself, in two weeks, this bank will mail me 200 printed checks in a box with this name. And with this ID, I'll just go cash them. So the new accounts person says, here's some temporary checks. We'll be mailing you your printed checks in about 10 days. So being young, I was very inquisitive. So I said, I noticed you didn't give me any deposit slips. Oh, no, they come from the check printer. Be in the back of the checkbook. You get them in 10 days. Well, what if I want to make a deposit tomorrow? Well, you see that table in the lobby has all those forms on there. Help yourself to a blank deposit slip. Then write your account number and I gave you. Use those to get your printed ones. So I went over and I took a stack of them. I went back. I kept looking at them and I thought to myself, I wonder. So I went out and bought what was called a magnetic encoder. It would look like a big calculating machine. And I magnetically encoded my account number on the bottom of all these blanks. Then I went back to the bank, put them on the shelf, and everyone who came in put their money directly in. Oh my, my God, that's awesome. <laughs> but I would do stuff that I didn't know would work. But, you know, I called the bank the next day. I said, I'm checking my balance 41000 I'll be right down. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. So now, how old are you when that started to happen? Uh, everything I did was between 16 and 21. Mm -hmm. I was arrested when I was 21 years old. Why did you get arrested? What what, was, what happened that like caused you? Did you go one step too far? No, I actually, first of all, I always knew I'd get caught. I, it was just a matter of time. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. So it was just a matter of time. I was caught. Uh, I, I'd stopped doing all this, and I was living in a little town in southern France called Montpellier. And someone recognized me, a flight attendant, and she notified the authorities. Uh, they arrested me and charged me in France for forging checks, and they sent me to French prison. So How was I, that? Did they give you wine and cheese No, in it was prison? a horrible, horrible really? experience. I wrote about it in the book, Catch Me If You Can. And uh, Steven Spielberg actually filmed in the cell I was in and, the th and reconstructed it during the time mm. I was there. It was a horrible place. And when that sentence was over, I was extradited to Sweden where I was charged with forging checks in Sweden. They convicted me of forgery and they sent me to French prison, uh, excuse me, to Swedish prison in Malmo, Sweden. And when that prison term was up, the U.S. government took custody of me and returned me to the United States. How long did you serve? About a Europe? year in Europe altogether. Mm -hmm. And then the U.S. government brought me back and a U.S. federal judge in Atlanta, Georgia, sentenced me to 12 years in Boy. federal prison. So I served four of those 12 years. Which federal prison were Petersburg, you? Virginia. How did you survive? Like, uh, you when know, did you, just were, you, like, were you a famous convict? No, back then, nobody really knew what okay. I did. And um, I was just a check writer. You know, I said, well, you're in jail, wrote bad oh, checks. Oh, bad checks, you know, right. And, um, 
I served four years of that sentence, and when I was 26, the government offered to take me out of prison if mm -hmm. I'd go to work with an agency of the federal government. They didn't say what agency. For the remainder of my sentence, or until my parole had been completed. So, of course, being the opportunist I was, I said, absolutely. Yes, that sounds like a so much better deal. deal. So I was released. Uh, I've been at the FBI now 43 years. I have, uh, I have educated two generations of FBI agents. How did you meet your wife? I met my wife on an undercover assignment because when I first came out, I worked undercover. And I met my wife in Houston, Texas on an undercover assignment. She wasn't part of the investigation, but she worked where I was investigating. And when it was over, I had to tell her the truth and tell her who I really was and my real name and uh, my background. And um, my wife actually eventually married me against the wishes of her parents. But I've well, been, the convict. <laughs> but I've been married for 43 years. So it's been let, me, let me ask you another question. So what was it like reuniting with your mother? I mean, you hadn't seen her for seven years. How did that happen? Uh, not until I really got out of prison. And, um, you know, you as I, like always, you know, your your parents, your siblings, they're your family. And no matter what you do, they're always going to take you back and uh, support you. So, I mean, my mother, uh, I, I don't think when I was doing the things and they came to her, she believed that I could possibly be doing the things that they said I was doing. But I think in the end, if she was my mom and obviously... Uh, your siblings older or younger? Two older, my brother and sister are older than I, and then a younger brother, and only my sisters left. Uh, two brothers have passed away. Wow. This is quite a life already. Yeah. Okay, so what is it about this field that, I mean, because there are some people who might say, this was a great opportunity for the FBI, but I never want to touch anything in law enforcement ever again. Why were you drawn to teaching this two generations of FBI officials about what you knew? What was important to you about that? Yeah, and that's a good question because, you know, uh, people like me to say that you were born again, uh, you saw the light in prison, prison rehabilitated you. I said, no, I was the same person when I came out of prison. I was the person going into prison. Mm -hmm. I was that opportunist who just saw that as an opportunity. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I didn't know that I would go straight. But uh, two things happened. Obviously, uh, one, I met my wife and uh, fell in love, and that that changed. She believed in me, had faith in me. That really turned my life around. And bringing children into the world and responsibility of being a father turned my life around. But back, you have to remember, back at that time when I went to the FBI, it was shortly after J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, all the agents were white. They were all men. Uh, they were pretty much Harvard, Yale graduates, law degrees, accounting degrees. Um, so there's a great scene in the movie which Steven Spielberg replicated in real life happened. That was the Washington field office, not headquarters, where I walked in and all the agents stood up like in a protest that I was there. Um, but you surround yourself by incredible people who had such an incredible ethical background, their character, their love of family, their uh, love of country that it starts to rub off on you and you start to realize these are amazing people doing amazing things and that I'm part of that. And it took years to build credibility to where those agents came to where they trusted me. I know that people are fascinated by my life between the ages of 16 and 21, but to be honest with you, I'm 71 and I wake up every morning and say to myself, I cannot believe that I did all these things uh, came out of prison, have worked for my government for 43 years, have worked with 50% of the Fortune 500 companies to help them with issues they've had, 
um, brought three wonderful sons into the world, who one is an FBI agent celebrating oh. 14 years in the Bureau. Wow. Uh, and married to my one and only wife for 43 years. So I recognize that I live in an amazing country where you can make mistakes, you go pay your debt, and you can come out. And if you really want to, if you want to change your life, you can change your life. But you have to want to do that. Was there any guilt that you felt in the aftermath? In the middle of it, it's hard to feel guilty, right? Came, but, it, so how does that come out It for comes you? up, it came with maturity, and I truly believe, yes. Your parents instill certain things in you, if you're lucky, and, um, you know, they, the belief in God, the belief in right and wrong, and same way in Catholic school. And yes, we all go down the road sometimes, and we make the wrong turn, and we get off on the wrong road. But that rope they gave us is always there, so you can reach out, grab that rope, and pull yourself back. Unfortunately, a lot of children today don't have that rope. So once they make that turn, mm. they have no way to ever get back to the right the right path because the right path has never been given to them. How do you feel about the concept of mercy or forgiveness? Well, I think everyone should be forgiven as long as they're as long as they prove themselves. You know, I get I get so many emails from people who say I just got out of prison 2 weeks ago, but I was a master with computer fraud. I know everything about uh, hacking and ransomware, and I would be a great asset to the government or a great asset to a company. And I write them and tell them, look, you have to go prove yourself. Microsoft is not going to hire you tomorrow. You have to go prove that you've changed your life, that you're doing something on the positive side. It took me years and years to build that credibility to where I was able to do that. So you can't expect, like a lot of young people, expect everything immediately right now. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to work towards that, and it's not easy. It's very difficult. This is Jill on Money. Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, and host of this, the Jill on Money podcast. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products, including a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including a no-penalty CD. Get inspired by your savings account and start saving today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow. You can money. Visit Marcus.com forward slash save. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Marcus Deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now back to our interview with reformed scam artist Frank Abagnale. So let's turn to the book. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's amazing. And, you know, I could talk to you for hours. Scam me if you can. Can you talk a little bit about the environment today? Because I grew up in New York also. I think nearby where you grew up. I grew up in Westchester as well. And I remember those licenses because right. which <laughs> where you took a little razor blade right. and you kind of changed something off. or scraped that right off. And then, you know, you went to Danny's in Hartsdale and they gave you a beer because right, you're exactly. 18. So what is it about today's technology that makes it better or worse for us as consumers? Well, two things. First of all, it's 4,000 times easier to do today than what I did back uh, 50 years ago because I didn't have the technology that exists today. 
But what's real scary today is, you know, 50 years ago, there were con men and con women, which stood for confidence people. They were people that gained your confidence. But of course, they had to be in front of you. You had to see them. So they were well-dressed. They were well-spoken. They had a great vocabulary. They were very likable and they won you over. But because they were a human being dealing with another human being, there was always a little bit of compassion. There was always a little bit of emotion involved. So you get the con man that says, you know, I'm not going to rip this old man off for everything he has. I don't want to take his home and take his life savings, but I'm going to take some of his money. Today you're dealing with someone sitting in a kitchen in their pajamas on a laptop with a cup of coffee in Moscow. They never see you. You never see them. So there is zero compassion. They will take you for every penny you have. And they don't care who you are, what the circumstances are. And I think that's what's real scary. The whole emotional side of it, the compassion side of it is gone. You write in the book, experts say the effects of fraud on on individuals are similar to the psychological aftermath experienced by victims of violent crimes and war, ranging from anxiety to emotional volatility, depression to post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I was surprised to read that because I thought, well, everybody's getting scammed right now. Everybody's got their their stuff's getting stolen. Or does it have to be a more personal, direct event? There's a couple of things it? here. First of all, um, unfortunately, when people are scammed, they don't want to tell anybody because, first of all, if it's a senior, an elderly person, they're afraid then the daughter says, see, mom, you can't handle your money. I need to take over your bank account, handle all your finances, and leaves their independence. They're afraid that if they tell the police, the neighbors are going to find out, say, well, Mrs. Jones was the idiot. She fell for the sweepstakes scam, lost $5,000. So they don't tell anybody. So these criminals just keep going on to get other people. So that's real bad. And I always tell them you need to tell somebody, otherwise they're going to go steal from somebody else. It's a lot like when somebody says, yeah, robbers came in my house. They didn't take anything, but they went through all my drawers and all my personal things, and you feel very violated. Mm. But I think the biggest key for me was that, you know, when I was doing the things I was doing, my victims were banks, corporations, hotels, never an individual. So people that I would meet, like a flight attendant I might date or someone I met, I gave them things. I took them on trips, took them out to dinner, whether they were a guy or a girl and they were friends. In the end, when it was found out who I was, all these people were very, very mad. And being young, I said to myself, why are these people mad at right, me? I took them I out do, for dinner. I didn't do anything to them. If anything, I gave them things. I took them on trips. But they felt deceived. They felt that I believed you were who you say you were. I, I thought you were my friend. And all the time you were deceiving me, you didn't trust me to tell me who you were. People are very affected by those mm. things. Who is more likely to be scammed? You mentioned that older people, and I know that they're often when we get the, the dirty dozen list from about the top financial scams or the top scams, often they're directed at older people. But you say anyone can be scammed. Anyone can be scammed. But what's interesting is when doing the research for this book over five years, uh, I found that millennials are actually more scammed more often than seniors, but seniors lose more money because well, they, they have, have more, more money, money. Yeah, right? Exactly. So why do you think that is? Uh, because young people just think everything's okay. They give away all kinds of information about themselves. They fall for a lot of the scams where they're on their computer and it pops up, Microsoft, you have malware on your computer, call us 800 number. They fall for that all the time, where seniors are less likely to fall for that particular scam. But yes, anyone can be scammed. I do a podcast for ARP every Wednesday out of Washington, D.C. called The Perfect Scam. So people call in. We send an investigator out to interview them. 
We've had two former FBI directors, long retired now, have been scammed, but they were good enough to call in and say, this is what happened to me. Uh, the editor-in-chief of Time magazine, 35 years at Time, he had been scammed, but he was good enough to call in and say, this is what happened. Anyone, including myself, can be scammed. So there's nothing to be ashamed of if somebody scams you, but you need to tell somebody so they don't go do it to somebody else. And there's something slightly different about a scam, which is, you know, obviously an illegal endeavor, and someone who just, like, pitches and sells you something that's nonsense, right? Right. Okay. So how do you tell the difference between sort of an aggressive sale and a scam? Or it does it matter? Well, there's still a scam. So today in the front page of the Wall Street Journal, they're talking about now all of these student loans and these companies that have popped up telling you, I can fix your student loan $1,200, $40 a month, I'll take care of it. They, they can't do that, but you could do the things they're telling you they do your own, just like these fix your credit. You can do that yourself. You don't need to pay somebody to do that for you. So those, in my, in my mind, are just scams. They're just another form of, uh, of scams. There are so many, almost if you look at almost every ad on television, it's somewhat of a scam. It so, doesn't do what they say it does, et cetera. You know, it's funny. So I wrote a book also. It's called The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. And I talk about how when you're up really late at night and you're watching cable TV and you see a advertisement for a reverse mortgage or for gold bars, that you are sort of like the perfect target. You're exhausted. You're fearful. You're scared about something going on. And so there you go for it. Absolutely. So I'm wondering in your now, you know, four plus decades of doing this, how you see the emotional part of this. People who are fearful or greedy seem to me to be the best targets. Is there anyone else who becomes a target in this? Yeah, there's always, there's a lot of greed in it. Yeah. I get a big kick out of the ones that I get. There's so many of them. Well, you, they get a call and say you want a sweepstakes that come out of Jamaica most of the time. So I say to the woman or the man, uh, did you enter a sweepstakes in Jamaica? Uh, no. But then how could you have won the sweepstakes? <laughs> You know, and why would you pay them money up front for money they're going to send, send you? So I think a lot of it is education is an extremely important tool to fighting crime. So whether I'm training FBI agents or whether I'm training consumers or bankers, if I say to them, here's the scam, this is how it works, this is what they say, this is what they do, uh, then you're not going to get scammed. But people are basically honest. And because they're honest, they don't have a deceptive mind. So if the phone rings and it says NYPD, they believe it's NYPD. And if they get on the phone and say, we arrested your grandson on the West Side Highway. He was drunk while driving. He had his girlfriend with him. They tell you the girlfriend's name. He was driving this kind of vehicle. Uh, he'd asked us not to call his parents. They tell you the parent's name. He asked us to call you. He needs to post bail within two hours. He'll have to uh, spend the weekend in jail. Well, how would I post his bail? I just give me a credit card oh, number and we can post his that's bail. That's brilliant. But what they're doing is they go to social media where the grandson said, here's a picture of my car. Here's my girlfriend and me. Here's her name. Here's my parents' name. So they get so much pertinent information that it sounds so real that the person thinks, well, caller ID is very easily manipulated. You can make it say whatever you want it to say when the phone rings. People don't know that until you tell them that. So I hope that this book gives you the tools to recognize those things, but also as a reference that if later on something comes up, you go, I think this might be a scam. You can go look it up and say, it is a scam. This is how it works. I'm wondering as, you know, I was reading through this, the one surprising thing that, not one, but one of the many surprising things that I learned was about passwords. Because we are often prompted here at work, you know, change your password every month, do it this, or that. 
Can you talk a little bit about the efficacy of changing passwords and these long 42-letter symbol passwords? Are they worth it or not? Absolutely. So I wrote back in the 1990s a book called The Art of the Steel, and in that book I said that passwords were for treehouses. And I wrote saying that passwords were invented in 1964. So I was 16 years old. I didn't even start doing these things. And now I'm 71, and here we are using passwords, still using passwords. And when we look at all the ransomware and all the breaches that occur and all the malware, it all comes down to passwords. So we have to absolutely eliminate the use of passwords. So I have spent the last uh, five years working with a company out in Arizona, a technology company, that I developed some other technology with years ago that they use in banks now to detect fraud. I work with this company now to eliminate the need of passwords. And we've developed that technology to do just that. And basically, uh, again, I don't have in stock in the company or anything. I work as a consultant to them. Mm-hmm. And basically, now you see, you might have seen an ad recently where Serena Williams is running through the park and she's in her jogging outfit. She only has her cell phone. She sees a necklace in the market she likes. So she walks over to her ATM. She presses the app on her phone. She gets some money, no card, no password. So many banks are converting now away from passwords, our airlines and re- retailers. So I think it's now in the next two or three years we'll see passwords leave. You will be identified by your phone. I'm not real thrilled about that. Mm. But that's a device we're all going to have on us, and that's the device that will identify us. But what I do like is that when you call the call center now, instead of that call center, say, at your bank, on that screen of that call center person is all your pertinent information. So they're asking you, what's your social security number? What's your mother's maiden name? Uh, They won't have any of that. So that's just people who can give that to somebody else. Mm. You eliminate that. Mm. They will just say, Mr. Abingdon, will you press the bank's app on your phone? Okay, how could I help you? And so, they'll have identified and so the, me. Da- and the only downside is you lose your phone, but then you can report it's stolen. And right, then and everything- not only that, if you lose your phone, I'd still need to have your picture, your biometrics, or your fingerprint, or your password to get into your phone in order to access it. How about the airport stuff like Clear or Global Entry where they look? They seem to be looking at your fingerprints. Is there any way that we can put fingerprints on your phone? Well, here's the problem. We just had a breach about two weeks ago of a company that keeps 20 million fingerprints and biometric pictures for City of New York, Australia, the UK, governments, private companies. So you access a building. Those are the companies that keep the data. Come on. They were breached. So now 20 million fingerprints and a photo biometrics are in the hands of somebody else. People went for this face app who said, hey, Here's me. I'm 20. How would I look if I was 60? 80 million Americans signed up for this Russian app, which if you read the terms in their contract, irrevocable, they can do anything they want with it. The Russians now have the biometrics and the information on 80 million Americans. So those are tools that can be used against us years later. So we do such ridiculous things without ever thinking them through. Oh, this is killing me. I hate this topic and I love this topic. So Frank Abagnale, thank you, Abagnale, the book is called Scam Me If You Can, Simple Strategies to Outsmart Today's Ripoff Artists. We'll have a link so everyone can buy it. We started the program and I said, best financial or career decision. What was the worst? Probably the worst decision I ever made was basically doing the things I did. Uh, You know, I should have, I don't like to use my parents' divorce as a crush. But I think if that judge had simply said to me, young man, 
uh, come back into my chambers for a few minutes and say, now look, your parents are getting a divorce. They can't live together anymore, but you will not lose your parents. You, and you need to tell me who you want to go live with now, but you'll be able to visit the other parent back and forth. And if later you change your mind, you're out to live with the other parent, you'll be able to do that. Had he just taken the few minutes to explain instead of the abrupt uh, take that he did. Now, I have to tell you, over the 43 years, I've spoken to every federal judge in the United States at their conferences, and I've spoken to state judges, state Supreme Court judges, and most of all, family court judges. So I've expressed that to them, that you have to take the time to do that. And I think that today, judges are a little more compassionate, a little more understanding that their words mean something and their actions mean something. You're listening to Jill on Money. Welcome to the Marcus Minute. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs in the hot seat today. Frank Abagnale. He has just written a book called Scam Me If You Can. Frank, you ready to play? Yes. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Uh, gives you gives you advantages and options. What's always worth spending on? Your wife. What's the dumbest thing you've spent on? A car. How much do you spend on a haircut? $30. Whose face would you put on the dollar bill? Probably President Reagan. It's your last day on earth. You've got 100 bucks in your pocket. What would you do with it? Do something for my children and family. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to Frank Abagnale. What a great treat to meet him. We drop new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday of Jill on Money. Sometimes we throw a bonus in as well. You can subscribe to the pod anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, even on our website, JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the best executive producer in the world. We are distributed by Cadence 13. Our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week. 